Welcome to Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 169, and it's 7th of November 2021. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Very good, thank you. Um, there's been a new trailer for Boba Fett, which we will, mm-hmm. of course, talk about. Um, and we've also both been reading the Phantom Menace novelization, I believe for the first time for both of us. Um, which, yeah, has been a lot of fun, um, and we're looking forward to talking about that as the main attraction of this episode. So <laughs> I hope you're excited for some book action, because that's what you're getting this time. Uh, so yeah, how about you, Kirsty? I expect it's been broadly similar in terms of Star Wars stuff. It has, and I've enjoyed reading something that's not like current in Star Wars news, yes. because I think we're about to get a lot more announcements and stuff next week is it i don't remember what it's called is it like disney plus day or something i think it is called disney plus day yeah which i find very clunky but whatever it's <laughs> descriptive i suppose <laughs> yeah so i think they're going to give us new trailers for things and maybe an- more announcements so it's kind of nice to go back to something that's like 20 years old <laughs> exactly yeah keeping my fingers crossed for that world between worlds movie <laughs> 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 no, like, I don't realistically expect that, by the way, just to be clear. But I would be very happy if they were to announce that. But yeah. It's okay to have dreams. Exactly. Dreams are good, even if they only happen inside my brain. <laughs> um, okay. But yeah, no, we have that to look forward to, so that's good. Um, but yeah, in terms of things that have already happened that we can look forward to, let's talk about the trailer for the book of Boba Fett. So, yep, that happened. It was the first look, really, because... I'd say we know almost nothing about this show. It's been very, very much under wraps. We obviously knew it was happening and we got the basic premise from like that stinger at the end of Mandalorian season two, you know, because obviously it goes into Jabba's palace, sits on the throne. It's pretty self-explanatory what's going on there, Well, yes and no. It's been kind of confusing both of us in terms of what it means for Boba as a character right oh yeah no no very much in terms of like why that's happening but just in terms of (laughs) why he would want that yeah yeah no so that's confusing but just in terms of like the physical realities of him going there and taking over that was pretty self-evident you know that was going to be a big part of the show um and yeah we've now got a little bit more in the form of this trailer so yeah what did you think about it Kirsty? I enjoyed it a lot more the second time around. I think the first one, and this is true of a lot of trailers, right? Unless it's something that I am already super invested in, like a sequel trilogy trailer or something. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always just like, yeah, that looks fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I'll enjoy it. Um, And there's just so much passing you by. You know, you're not necessarily paying attention to who's saying what or what aliens are being featured and where they are and all the sets and everything. So second time around, I was just able to take a lot more in and I do have questions. Um, and also I just kind of, it reminded me how awesome it is that Ming-Na Wen as Fennec Shand is a lead in a show. Yeah. Cause I was thinking back to when we watched, I can't remember which episode it was, but like midway through, you know which one I'm talking about, midway through season one of The Mandalorian. Yep, I very clearly she... remember the one with that like really yeah. annoying bratty guy and also <laughs> Fennec, who's awesome. And look who died in that, but then who came back? So yeah. Yeah, and it was obviously a popular theory at the time that it was Boba Fett walking up to her, but we weren't sure how that was all going to pan out. And now they have a show together. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm just kind of intrigued uh, to see how they develop these characters because I know the fandom in general has almost done like a 180 where Boba Fett is concerned 
and I, I do think a lot of that is down to Tamara Morrison's own charisma and just he seems like an awesome guy and everyone's happy for him um in terms of Bobra, I'm still not quite sure how I feel about him because he's still so mysterious. So interested to see how this show is going to evolve and kind of unpack his character a little bit. Yeah, no, that's really well stated. Because, um, yeah, let's think for a minute about who Boba Fett is and what we know <laughs> about him. Well, he says at the beginning of the show, he's in the trailer, I'm not a bounty hunter. It's like, <laughs> oh, really? Because <laughs> that's all we know about you. No, exactly. So that in itself is pretty revelatory, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, in the original trilogy, he's, you know, like a bit character almost. You know, especially in Empire, he is there to, like, take Han Solo away when he's been frozen in carbonite. Then he gets a tiny bit more to do in Return of the Jedi, you know, in terms of some action stuff. Then he ends up in the Sarlacc, and that's bye-bye Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, that whole time, in the originals, he's bounty hunting. You know, that's his thing. That's what he does. We don't get any expressions of dissatisfaction with that life or any expressions of an interest in doing anything else. So that's not to say he doesn't have an interest in doing anything else. He did have that brief pretense of a friendship with Luke in the holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he wants friendship. So that's the well, I think thing. it's that's up for debate. <laughs> I don't know if he was like. He could have actually wanted to be friends with Luke. Maybe he thinks that he's secretly a cool dude, but... Yeah, you've got to dig deep, Kirsty. You've got to, like, bring out all the layers that are inherent in these things, especially the holiday specials. We know (laughs) that. But yeah, he now has that in Fennec. So they're buddies, or potentially something more. Who knows? Um, And he's clearly completely shifted his aspirations to becoming the leader (laughs) of a criminal empire. But a good one. Yeah, like... Well, that's the thing. I'm not 100% sure... (laughs) about the moral alignment you know of what he's doing like from some of the things he's saying he seems to be more noble than Jabba you know but who knows if he's just like politicking you know and he's trying to get people yeah. on his side only to like betray them horribly later anything I think possible. I'm gonna need to know his thoughts on slavery before <laughs> we make any big decisions about how we feel about Boba Fett taking over from Jabba because Jabba was very much pro-slavery so yeah yeah and let's see what he like goes to for like his entertainment options as well, because yeah, Jabba's not great from like a moral perspective, um, in terms of what he was into. Um, so yeah, like hopefully Boba's more into like cool music and stuff, but like all paying the artists, you know, and not enslaving anyone. Um, so yeah, like <laughs> just I'm just thinking about like the like crazy niche nonsense this show can go into. You know, it can literally <laughs> go into things like the payroll department of Jabba's palace. <laughs> you know, and like Boba deciding like what wages to give him. Are they unionized? <laughs> yeah, but this exactly. is the thing, like, because that's the thing. I this is not the kind of thing I would normally think about, but the, they're kind of drawing attention to it in this trailer by saying Jabba ruled with fear, but I plan to rule with respect. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, and is this gonna? yeah make any sense or are they gonna kind of just like gloss over that stuff for more exciting actiony show which would probably be be tempting yeah there there were a lot of action scenes i feel like in the trailer but there were also talky scenes you know there's clearly like diplomacy going on if you can call it that um i did actually find the like aliens quite charming in the trailer because it all looked a bit like um 
slightly naff, you know, but but I say that for affection. So no one should like shout at me because of that, because I think it was like naff in a fun way. You know, like how, you know, you look at the background characters in the original Star Wars, which I'm sure was at the forefront of the minds of everyone working on this, as we'll find out in the behind the scenes documentary <laughs> that will inevitably be released. But, you know, if you look at those characters in the background of the cantina, they do look a bit rubbish in that. You know, that's why you have like Satan, like just sat <laughs> at the bar in Tatooine. Yeah, the effects are better, but it does. It's obviously hokey. Yeah, exactly. It's hokey, and I personally like that. So, um, yeah, that aesthetic appealed to me. Yeah, it just kind of reminded me of like a Jane Austen dinner scene. <laughs> it's kind of awkward. <laughs> I love that comparison. That's great. <laughs> like, which part in particular? <laughs> just where they actually like just sat there, kind of looking at him at the head of the table. <laughs> I hope that there's also the romantic intrigues going on, Kirsty. Well, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what um, got me fired up in terms of romance. There's a shot where you see Boba, and unmasked, very important, and Fennec stood on a balcony, you know, and like slightly leaning over the balcony, clearly talking, you know, in conversation. And it gave me serious Disney Aladdin vibes. You know? It gave me Finn Rose vibes. Oh, nice. Like, is it from Canto Bight, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just hoping it's the kind of opportunity where they do kind of show a bit more of the emotional vulnerability of these characters. Like, maybe they do only share how they really feel with each other. Yeah. No, exactly. I'd be super keen on getting that sort of thing because I don't want them to just be like comrades in arms, you know, which is fine. Like, it's good to have someone who'll fight alongside you, but. I just want to like understand these people more, you know, like what's going on inside their brains because yeah, yeah that's what makes them interesting in my book. Mm-hmm. I agree. So we'll see. Yeah. Not too long to wait now. Exactly. It's just after Christmas, right? Yeah. The 29th. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. So that's like a nice slow period between Christmas and New Year where no one's doing anything in particular. So it's a good time to just like veg out and watch something. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, cool. That's good. Um, right, then the next thing we want to talk about is that Matt Smith has come out of the woodwork to talk about his involvement in The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, so Matt was talking about his involvement in The Rise of Skywalker with Josh Harovitz of the Happy, Sad, Confused podcast. Um, and we actually have a very convenient transcription of what he said via IndieWire. So yeah, could you read out the transcription, please, Kirsty? No, I didn't shoot any scenes, Smith said. We were close to me being in it, and then it never quite happened. I think the thing they were thinking of me for, eventually it became obsolete and they didn't need it. And so I never got to be in Star Wars. There we are. Smith said he could not possibly say whether the role was Palpatine's son, but it's this tease that is getting the Star Wars fandom worked up. But it was a pretty groovy thing. It was a really groovy part and concept. It was a big thing. It was a big story detail, a transformative Star Wars story detail, and it never got quite over the line. I mean, it was like a big shift in the history of the franchise, Smith added. There was no costume test, and there were a couple of meetings to talk about it. Maybe I can come back. You never know. To come back as... Sorry, my friend. (laughs) That was expertly handled by Kirsty, by the way, because there were several moments in square brackets in that transcription because Matt was making bizarre noises and there were interruptions and stuff so well done Kirsty that was very well read he's being very coy but I think the fandom has kind of decided that he was going to be a young Palpatine or like a version of a clone right 
yeah, those are like the hot theories. Um, this when I first saw this, I immediately thought about you, Kirsty, because didn't you say that you like weren't sold on the idea that Matt was ever involved in any capacity because we hadn't heard it. Well, because all all we ever had to go on was one article from Variety. Yes, it was never confirmed elsewhere. Yeah. So the fact that we had that one thing and then it was never mentioned again, it's like obviously it didn't get to the point. Like at most, it seems like it was a few conversations. Yeah. You know, which I'm sure they probably did with all sorts of things. Because, I mean, the story was all over the place, wasn't yeah. it? We've exactly. already heard from Daisy that they hadn't decided that she was definitely going to be a Palpatine when they started filming. So if he was going to be young Palpatine at the end, that is the kind of thing that they could have been thinking about until like halfway through shooting and then decided not to. Yeah, no, that's a really good observation. Um, because, yeah, I think... Again, we don't know for sure, you know, because Matt's not saying. He obviously knows what part he was being considered for, but he's not going to say for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, I guess my bet would be on like a rejuvenated Palpatine. Um, and I think that would have been cool, you know, to like have that illustrated in a more powerful way, I guess. You know, because obviously in the actual movie, yes, he is rejuvenated. But he still looks like a corpse man. And the only real clear visual signifier of this rejuvenation is the fact that he has some nice new clothes. <laughs> I think it's all very clumsily handled. Yeah. And it makes no great. thematic sense in terms of Ray having a connection to her grandfather. Like, why would she suddenly want to see her grandfather as a young man? What would that change? Unless he was, like, somehow appealing to her, like, oh, I never got the life I wanted to live either, or... I or going for a different angle. Maybe this was before she was a daughter of Palpatine's clone and he was going to try and have like a twisted dark love triangle aspect. We really can't say because there were so many moving parts. Yeah, well that latter option that you just suggested is what I was immediately thinking about when you raised that point about it not being set in stone that Ray was a Palpatine when they started filming. You mm. know, because again, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm just lacking in imagination, but as far as I'm concerned, if they were to go with the Ray Palpatine angle, they couldn't also have the angle of Palpatine turning into young and sexy Matt Smith. I know? don't think... I, I, it, Matt Smith can play all different kinds of characters. He wouldn't necessarily have gone for sexy. He doesn't necessarily have to be sexy, but <laughs> I still think it would be a very weird story beat, you know, if it's your granddad and then he turns into a young man. Of course it's weird, but it's the Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> The whole yeah. thing was weird. Yeah, the whole well, thing is like a fever dream. Maybe this all just points to like a poverty of my imagination, Kirsty. <laughs> I don't think it's your imagination. I think it's theirs. <laughs> just yeah. nothing to me. And I know other people feel differently sure. and that's great. And I'm jealous of them. But just a lot of things just don't work for me thematically. They're just like throwing ideas out there for the sake of it. Yeah. So why don't we have Palpatine turn young? It's just another one of those things. It's like, but why? What are you trying to say about Palpatine or the nature of the dark side there? Or And this sort of thing is why I would love to get like a proper making of book about the Rise of Skywalker because I want to understand, you know, I want to understand like the iterations of this thing because there were clearly lots of them, you know, they were like playing around with lots of different options and potential story ideas, you know, until quite late in the process. You know, and I don't know, maybe it would just be like self-flagellation or something to like look into that too deeply, you know, because you just think about what might have been. But 
I guess just as someone who is interested in movies in general and how movies are made, I find the flux that this project was in for like such a period quite fascinating, you know, and and like to an extent I'm sympathetic to them, you know, because I know that with Colin Trevorrow being booted out quite late in the day, it was always going to be more rushed, you know, as long as they stuck to that planned release date in 2019. Yeah, it just seems to have been complete panic, I think, in terms of what story are we going to tell. Um, And yeah, I think this sort of thing, you know, with what Matt Smith is talking about here, I think this is like a symptom of that. Yeah, no, I agree. Bullet dodged, Matt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I bet you anything, one of the reasons they considered doing something like this is because they wanted like an epic climactic lightsaber duel. And I'm not joking around with this. And obviously, you know, Ian is like an older man, you know, he wouldn't be able to do it. They could have got like a stunt double or something, it would probably still look quite silly. You know, it looked really silly in Revenge of the Sith, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love Revenge of the Sith, okay, but it did look stupid. Like, I've just got a speaker so fine. Um, and yeah, like, maybe that's one of the like reasons they were considering going down this road you know having like three young strong opponents against each other two on one that could be quite cool um and i do understand the appeal of that but again that's not a good reason to like choose a radical story direction because you shouldn't do that just because you want a certain fight scene but in any case it's all academics it never happened so whatever i think they it's possible it would have been possible for them to walk backwards from that and think why should ray care about palpatine or why should she care about him in this incarnation what can he offer her Mm. that's gonna resonate with her based on her past and how she was abandoned and everything but I think even in the iteration we got, so much of it, like the actual emotional depth there was kind of overlooked in this weird way that like they mi- they missed the mark with appealing to her need for family. Yeah. Which is like, it's right there. He's her grandfather, but you don't really do much with that. So even with all the pieces there, they might have still missed it. Yeah. And like with Tross I think one of my main frustrations is I don't think that Ray Palpatine is a fundamentally impossible to execute idea you know I think there's interest in ways to do that story beat and again that idea of like the emotional connection you know and this like monster being Ray's grandfather could have been interesting and it could have been emotive you know like especially because her grandfather had her mother and father killed you know there's lots of like emotional intensity inherent in that setup but it's just not explored it's not engaged with and yeah i think that's what frustrates us yeah it's just it doesn't mean much for ray as a character because it's just her being told pieces of information from various characters like kylo tells her the big reveal then she sees palpatine and or before that she hears luke and it's all just like it doesn't seem to matter to her that much it's very strange i can't can't put my finger on why it doesn't work but it doesn't for me yeah it's what makes the movie like ah, but also very interesting to me because it could have been so much better it's just not but yeah it could but there's just not a vision there and i think all of these different choices and as you you call it like panic because they were on a deadline it is just like scrambling to find the story as opposed to having a story to tell yes and and you can you can see it Always comes back to trust, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we can start to look for the future a bit more because there are going to be new things announced this week. And I think the next story, whether it's true or not, kind of 
shifts the emphasis we, we've got to move forward at some point <laughs> yeah exactly um but yeah the characters will always live on in my heart so that's okay isn't that one of the trust taglines the story will live on forever <laughs> yes you're right it was yeah yeah it really obviously worked on you <laughs> yeah well ben solo lives on forever Kirsty. so that part <laughs> okay. worked um, okay, so let's move on to the next item, which is from Star Wars Newsnet, and they're reporting on a mysterious Star Wars film that's rumoured to begin shooting next year for a potential 2023 release. So yeah, could you read this out, please, Kirsty? A rumour from our friend Big Screen Leaks has suggested that Lucasfilm is moving ahead quickly on a movie for 2023, but it's not Rogue Squadron. It's apparently a different film tied to the Old Republic era. Earlier today, our pal Big Screen Leaks posted on Twitter a curious rumour that a new and not yet revealed Star Wars film is planning to shoot next year. It is not tied to any of the reported film projects announced by Lucasfilm or the trades. We reached out to the source for clarification on this interesting story, and we've learned that while Lucasfilm is moving full steam ahead on the Rogue Squadron movie from director Patty Jenkins, they are taking their time to make sure that the screenplay is just right before filming begins. The script in question, written by Matthew Robinson, has itself received a major rewrite since it was first announced, and Jenkins herself is keeping busy with her work on a third Wonder Woman movie, which she is confirmed to direct, and a planned Amazon spin-off which she's set to produce. The people at Lucasfilm wanted a hiatus from annual film releases in order to be able to ensure that each project they work on has the right amount of time and development, and they want to make sure that they don't have to rush things to make specific deadlines. Because of this, there is word that they are currently contemplating and are very close to pushing Rogue Squadron to some point in 2024. No word on what this might mean for the currently scheduled Avatar 3, which is slated to release that December, which seems to be the go-to window for Star Wars movies since Disney's acquisition of Lucasfilm. Well, they were actually going to release Episode 9 in May. Yeah. When it was Trevorrow's, so that's not necessarily true. Yeah, that's right, and they released um, Solo in May, right? Yeah, which actually might have been a misstep in hindsight because it was so hot on the tails of The Last Jedi. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I think with the May thing is like nostalgia throwbacks. I believe the original yeah. trilogy films were released in May. Um, yeah. But yeah, just because um, release in May worked well in the 1970s, it doesn't mean it's going to work well in the 21st century. So, <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, they're right to say that it's probably dependent on what else Disney have coming out because Disney owns everything. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty frightening, isn't it? Especially depressing when you look at like the top box office releases for the year. I know. And they're all Disney. Um, but yeah, whatever. That's a separate conversation. Um, yeah, this was unexpected and interesting. Um, so I think there had been reports a few years ago about a script being written for like an old Republic movie. I can't remember if it was, you know, an adaptation of the video game or if it was just a story set in that era. Um, but I remember reading something about that years ago, um, but then nothing else, which seems to be the trend, to be honest, of movie projects being announced by Lucasfilm. There's been so much stuff announced that nothing has come of it. But to be fair, a lot of the stuff that's announced, and I'm doing like the little finger quotes, you know, as I say that, it's not like formally announced you know it's like announced by variety or the hollywood reporter or something and yeah well they get repackaged yeah. like boba was originally going to have a movie right yeah. and now he's a tv show exactly yeah so i guess it makes sense you know lucasfilm is functioning as a studio so they're going to have lots of different ideas that they're considering and projects that may or may not go forward so mm. that might make sense basically of why we hear lots of reports and then things may or may not come to fruition 
Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting to me. It's like I did think that Rogue Squadron would stick to that 2023 date, but at the same time, if it needs more time, it needs more time, you know, and time back to the conversation we've just had about the rise of skywalker <laughs> take all the time you need yeah exactly i'm glad though you know because it shows that they're learning from that because i'm sure everyone at lucasfilm is acutely aware that rise of skywalker could have been a much better movie if they'd allowed an extra year you know to actually plan it and have like a clearly conceived story and everything that might not have been their choice to be honest it might have been bob Iger's. oh yeah no i imagine it was you know like it's very powerful people behind those sorts of decisions but i'd imagine there's been a lot of pushing you know from kathy kennedy and from wider lucasfilm you know saying look if we want these movies to succeed we have to have the time necessary to develop them and yeah. i think the fact that there's lots of stuff coming on disney plus you know on the tv side I think that does give them this breathing room with the movies. You know, it's just not like a complete Star Wars drought. People are being fed, as the kids say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, there's that room now to take the time they need to develop the movies, which, yeah, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Did you know that there was a third Wonder Woman coming out? I didn't. I had no idea. I guess I'm not too surprised. Was... Yeah, that like first one was obviously very successful, and the second one... You know, that came out right in the middle of the pandemic and was like a dual release on streaming. So mm. it's impossible to comment fairly, you know, on how well that one did because there's just no benchmark for that. Um, it was a terrible movie, though. So. It wasn't great, but in a twisted way, I'm quite pleased that Jenkins is still involved and she hasn't been thrown off because sometimes when women fail at these things, it can just be like, well, let's just hand it to a man. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. So for this story, so it's not Rogue Squadron, but obviously they're talking about Rogue Squadron quite a lot because that's like what we were told was the next movie. Yes. And then you say it's also not going to be Tykers. No. So yeah, Old Republic. I don't know. I'm a little sceptical of this story and especially as the original tweet about it was they'd misspelled Rogue Squadron to Rouge Squadron, (laughs) which was a bit of a throwback to the Rogue One days. Yeah, that's great. I saw someone like say it could be... um like a story about a bunch of like um like da- dancers from like Jabba's palace like doing a heist or something <laughs> like themed around makeup uh, <laughs> which yeah i love the imagination of fandom sometimes um oh god um but yeah no you're right like there's reasons to like be a bit skeptical and not take it super seriously basically so it's like a hundred percent rumor and even in souls newsnet's article you know they say this is a rumor you know so take it as rumor don't take it as gospel so no one should be like taking this to the bank basically um but yeah like it's interesting to know and we'll see what happens because Whichever way it swings, you know, if Rogue Squadron is going to come out in 2023, it's going to have to film next year, you know, in 2022. And Mm. if that is the case, then we're going to have to get things like casting announcements soon, you know, because they won't keep that a secret. You know, places like Variety and Hollywood Reporter will have those reports. So, yeah, we'd find out that way. Um, And yet, equally, if there is going to be this other mysterious, potentially Old Republic film will get announcements for that, you know, and know that that is happening 100%. Um, But yeah, time will tell. I expect we'll know for sure in a few months, either way. I mean, the fact that they're bringing this rumour to light now, if there's anything to it, is it possible that they would announce something next week? Yeah, that's a good point. Like, it would feel like a natural time, to be honest, if, yeah, they did have, like, a new movie or anything to reveal. Yeah. 
because if they're filming it next year they really don't have much time to let people know about it yeah and like the coolest way in my opinion to reveal these projects is to you know give you information about who's attached you know to say oh it's stars so-and-so actor you know because to me when it's just saying oh a director is working on a Star Wars movie I take that with a pinch of salt now you know I can't take that too seriously or act like it's going to happen because there have been lots of those announcements then nothing has proceeded mm. you know so I think yeah. if something like a cast were to be revealed at the same time as a project I'll take it more seriously and assume it's happening yeah you can start theorizing about the story and, and just thinking about what it'll look like if you have more of a sense of the story and the who's going to be in it right so exactly yeah i remember we did an episode about like the lead up to force awakens and like those cast announcements and yeah just that era was so fun you know of like seeing the sorts of people who are attached and seeing like the crazy like oh max von cedo is like boba fett (laughs) 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 which i will love till my dying day donal gleason is (laughs) luke skywalker's son (laughs) (laughs) So I'm very curious to see what Disney Plus Day brings and suffice to say we're going to have a lot of news to discuss next episode I assume anyway Um, but yeah, it should be fun I really want a glimpse of Hayden in the new Vader role Oh, honestly, I think that would completely set the internet ablaze if they like do that especially if they like show his face somehow you know, it's like I'm sure I know for a fact that they're going to show that Vader helmet you know, of course they're going to show the bloody Vader helmet (laughs) but like, that could be anyone under there, you know the main attraction of this thing I think beyond Ewan being back which is obviously a big deal in itself is the fact that they have Hayden back you know so I want to see Anakin please yeah that'd be good um okay and then very quickly before we move on to our discussion of the Phantom Menace novelization um just a little bit of good news about Star Wars Visions because I'm not prepared to let it go yet because I love Visions very much um, but The Village Bride has been submitted for consideration at the 2022 Oscars. So I'm not going to like read out the whole spiel, but basically to qualify for consideration, you know, it's like an animated short, a movie has to like play in a festival or like be shown on the big screen somewhere, basically. So Disney apparently showed The Village Bride at the El Capitan Theatre in Los Angeles in September. So it qualifies. And that makes me really happy because I honestly think Village Bride is top tier visions. You know, so if I if they'd come to me, you know, because of course they'd come to me and said, Rachel, what episode of Visions do you think we should submit for Oscar consideration? Village Bride would have been one of them. Although I wouldn't have just been able to say that because I love several (laughs) of us as well. It's a good choice. It's stunning. I would have enjoyed seeing that on the big screen, to be honest. Yeah. It would be really cool. If you could choose, like, say, up to four episodes of Visions to, like, watch in a cinema, you know, it's like, make them, like, your movie, you know, like an animatrix, if you will, like, and watch them in a cinema, which ones would you choose? Hmm. Um, probably The Ninth Jedi. Mm-hmm. Maybe The Twins, because it's so dramatic. Yeah. No, I could see that. I think that would look amazing on the big screen, actually. I, I think The Twins is actually a really good shout. So it's not... Like, I, I really like it, but it's, like, not in my, like, top three or four, you know? Um, but I think it's so cinematic, you know, it would look really amazing on a big screen. So, yeah, I, I would yeah. probably choose that one as well. Um, and I think I'd throw in Akakiri as well, because I feel like the animation style of that one is a bit peculiar, you know? And it's not perhaps my favourite style of animation of all the shorts. But obviously, I love it as a story. 
And I also think it's, again, got that very big scope to it, you know, of lots of wide vistas and stuff. So I think it would mm. look really cool again on the big screen. And yeah, and I'll just follow what Lucasfilm did and also choose The Village Bride because it's just <laughs> awesome. And it looks like a Ghibli yeah. movie as well. So it has yeah. that going for it. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if that works out for them and it, and it is nominated. Yeah, like... I kind of feel like it's not really fair for me to comment so I haven't seen any of the like, animated shorts you know, produced <laughs> in the last year so I'm sure there's some incredible stuff that I just don't know exists but you know, just based on the quality of that short in isolation I feel like it's got to be at least on the shortlist so yeah, we will see mm-hmm. um, Okay, cool so let's move into our conversation on the novelization of The Phantom Menace which is by Terry Brooks um, yep, so we have basically a wider novelization project um, where in the past we have done episodes on the novelizations of the original Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Each one was its own episode where the novelization was the spotlight. I'm very sorry if I'd been more prepared, I would have the numbers of those episodes in front of me. I do not. You search. <laughs> it was a good while ago now. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And if you search for like Scavenger's Horde, Empire Strikes Back novelization. You will find that episode, I promise you. Um, so yeah, if you are interested in hearing our thoughts on those novelizations, please do go back and check them out. But yeah, we've taken a bit of a break. Um, I'm not even 100% sure consciously why. I think there's just been a lot of other random stuff to talk about. <laughs> we kept meaning to come back to it, but then other stuff would happen. Yeah, no, I think that's it. And yeah, but it reached a point where... I think both of us, to be honest, felt like we need to do this, otherwise it's not going to happen. And we want to finish what we started <laughs> and follow our model and icon, Kylo Ren. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I need to stop speaking collectively because I make it so weird all the time. <laughs> but um, yeah, we did want to sincerely finish what we started and get through these novelizations because we did really enjoy them. And we had fun with all the original trilogy ones. And based on the start that it's got off to with this one i think we'll have fun with the prequel ones too yeah yeah and as i said at the beginning it's also nice to dip into a piece of star wars that's really quiet right now and not dead obviously there's still a huge prequels fandom and even more so these days really compared to earlier years because we've got the kenobi series coming you know like people love the prequels there's there's been a real prequel renaissance recently um but it's an area of fandom that there's not going to be a ton of discourse around the Phantom Menace novelization. There's no controversy, so it it does feel refreshing in a way to retreat to something like that. Yeah, no, it almost feels kind of quaint, <laughs> like, like reading this. <laughs> it's how most people enjoy Star Wars, to be honest. <laughs> yes. It's just like a bit of a holiday, you know, because no one's like arguing about this shit, you know, no one's having like angry debates and... And it's not like the whole sequel trilogy thing, because I think we are hoping to get to the sequel novelizations as well, you know, and do them in detail. Um, But in a way, that feels a bit more explosive, you know, because there's still so much, like, drama inherent in those films, you know, and, like, especially Rise of Skywalker, that's going to be a lot to unpack. Um, But, yeah, I feel like with the prequel ones, it's so long ago and everything's settled, you know, all the dust is down. And it just feels like nice and warm and safe and cuddly and I'm just being weird again. <laughs> but I enjoyed it and I'm glad we're returning to these novelizations. So yeah, as short of something happening that means 
it would take like two hours to get through the news section, in which case it's impossible to do the news and the novelization discussion. The next three episodes, including this one, should all be the prequel novelizations, basically. So fingers crossed. But you've already started reading Attack of the Clones, haven't you? I have. I'm only about 15 pages in, though, so <laughs> I've not <laughs> made like, huge progress. Yeah, exactly. I'm quite a slow <laughs> reader, especially compared to Kirsty. But yeah, no, we'll get there. So I do enjoy them. I'm just, yeah, I'm not in the habit of reading for whatever reason. Probably watching too many movies. Um, <laughs> okay, so let's start off with the background to this thing. So this novelization was written by Terry Brooks. Um, and he's probably most famous for writing the Shannara series of fantasy novels, um, which started with The Sword of Shannara, which was published in the 1970s. I personally haven't read those books. Have you, Kirsty? Me neither. I okay. wasn't even aware of them. So Yeah, like, I, I think I was vaguely aware of them. You know, I was a very much a fantasy-loving kid, you know, as a teenager. So they were on my radar, but I never got around to them for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, that's what he's known for. Um, and I did some digging and I found an interview with Terry Brooks in Writer's Digest where he talked about getting involved with the novel. Um, so, yep, could you just read out his answer when he was asked, how did you get this assignment, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. What I know is I got a call from my publisher, Del Rey, asking if I'd like to do another adaptation. I said I'd rather be tired and feathered. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Great, wow, Terry. <laughs> then my contact said, yes, but this is the Star Wars project. I was in the middle of the mall when I was taking this call and I was looking at all the people shopping. I thought, if I turn this down, how will I tell my kids? So I said, I would want to meet with George Lucas and hear his vision. The publisher said, that's good because that's what he wants too. So we took a plane down to Skywalker Ranch, had an opportunity to read the script, see the rushes, talk to people. I spent four hours with Lucas and his head of development for subsidiary rights and the person who recruited me. I also suspect that he knew of my work. The Sword of Shannara, my first book, was being edited about the same time as the Star Wars novelization, and we had the same editor. She used to talk to me about Lucas before the movie came out and before my book came out. I know she also talked to him about me. When we met for the first time, he indicated there was some name recognition and that had gone into whether or not he thought I could do this. Yeah, so I just thought this was like a really nice, interesting little piece of background, basically. Um, because yeah, all the authors have a story basically about how they came to be involved in Star Wars, and this is Terry's. Um, and yeah, and I guess I just particularly like you know that George took the time to meet him and like talk through his ideas and like the vision for what the story was going to be, you know, and presumably what should be emphasised in the novelisation. Um, because yeah, I do think it comes through, you know, and we'll talk about it in more detail when we dig into things. But I'd say there's parts of the novelization that feel like definite foreshadowing for the arc of the prequel trilogy as a whole you know and mm-hmm. i don't think terry would have just got that from the script of the phantom menace you know so i think having that sort of insight from george himself you know you can tell in the pages of this book that they had those sorts of conversations and i think that's really cool yeah i think it does make a difference and i think it speaks to george's commitment and passion for the story that he was telling as well yeah. Because presumably he was pretty short on time. He was a busy guy. Yeah, 100%. But he's, you know, he spent half a day with Terry to make sure they were on the same page and he was excited about this and understood the story they were telling. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. I think often novelizations are looked down on a bit as an art form, you know, and they're considered just 
like cheap things that it churned out, you know, to make a bit of extra money. You know, they're like another piece of merchandise. But I think the fact that George did have that investment and took the time to meet with Terry like that, it shows he clearly had a higher opinion of it than that and recognised the importance. And I guess that would tie into his experiences with that original Star Wars novelization because I think we talked about this in our episode about that book, but that book was published before the movie even came out. So in many ways, that was people's first experience of what the story of Star Wars was. So if anything is going to impress on George the importance of what a book can do for your film, you know, in terms of like drumming up excitement and creating this really vivid sense of your vision in people's minds that experience will have done that you know because that book sold like gangbusters you know millions of copies um so yeah it's really cool i think the phantom menace novelization came out before the movie too do you know by how much no we'd have to look it up but i'm i'm sure i've seen people talk about it and how that would obviously never happen today yeah, so Terry also spoke a bit about what it was like to work with George Lucas and what that whole relationship with Lucasfilm was like. Just wondered if you could read that answer out, Kirsty. This is also from the Writer's Digest interview. Mm-hmm. I was impressed with how thoroughly he had thought this out. He was easy to work with. He wanted the book to be a different experience than the movie. Moviegoers who read the book would discover an expansion of the movie, a different experience expanding on his story in ways he was unable to do in the limits of the film. I was allowed to do a number of chapters that are not in the movie because there's a lot of history that's not in the movie just for time and space constraints. That made it a more intriguing project for me. The understanding was that he had the final say. If he didn't like what I did, he could change it or do what he wanted. But he wasn't concerned that I follow the dialogue exactly as it was in the movie. He wanted the story to be true to the movie's story arc, its spirit, but to have a different kind of impact. He understands there's a radical difference between screenwriting and reading. The movie is all visuals, whereas on the printed page you're creating the images in your mind. The ability to shift around dialogue and juxtapose scenes makes this a much stronger book. It's really not a novelization, but a novel. I had some help with the terminology because I don't understand all that stuff, but Lucas didn't make any major changes, just last minute changes due to changes in the movie during the editing process. I was quite surprised he left all the original work alone. Again, it's just super interesting to me and yeah, I feel like of all the authors that we've like read about their work and relationship with Lucas, this ties up quite closely, I think, in what we've read before about the original trilogy novels. Um, and yeah, I do like, you know, that obviously Terry is speaking a lot about the freedom he was given, you know, to tell the story in a way that he liked and come up with things like the extra chapters, which we will talk about um, in due course. Um, and yeah, like I, I'm not quite sure I'd agree with the proclamation as a novel rather than a novelization. It's definitely a novelization. Oh, well. um, I can understand the author wanting to assert that. Of course. Especially yeah. given his earlier response about definitely not wanting to do an adaptation. You know, you want <laughs> yeah. to do your own work. Yeah, no, that's true. And during the research I did, I found that Terry had previously written the novelization for the film Hook, um, the Steven oh. Spielberg film. And apparently that was a horrible experience. Um, I didn't read into why exactly it was a horrible experience, but that gives context to why he said he'd rather be tarred and feathered. (laughs) (laughs) Poor man. I have a lot of nostalgic love for Hook, but (laughs) it's not an amazing piece of cinema, shall we say. Yeah, I can't even imagine novelising Hook to be honest. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sorry. I'd be quite interested in reading that just to see what the hell that even looks like, but... um, yeah, another conversation for another time. Um, 
but yeah no again terry seems like a very nice man and i'm glad it was such a nice experience for him it's lovely yeah i think this is definitely yeah it's 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 making me almost proud to hear that george was such a joy to work with i know right (laughs) god that's good (laughs) yeah it's like i i feel like i probably have a slightly unfair like image in my mind's eye you know of what George is like as a collaborator because often in the making of movies you know the documentaries he like seems like a bit of a grump you know and I love him for that oh yeah that's different though that's yeah yeah and it is you know and again it just shows that that's not reflective of the actual experience of working with him one-on-one like he seems like a genuinely good person to collaborate with you know especially from Terry's perspective so yeah it's very Mm. nice um and yeah and just the like attention paid you know like after it's been written you know with like George clearly taking the time to read the thing like I can't imagine that like J.J. Abrams read the novelization of The Force Awakens after that came out maybe he did I don't know um but yeah I feel like in modern times that sort of thing would be more delegated you know the actual director yeah. wouldn't touch that sort of thing so yeah I think that represents a kind of like old school foreignness that maybe doesn't happen anymore I think it's also just the difference between George making the prequels where he'd been thinking about that story for decades you know Um, obviously things evolved and changed it wasn't exactly what he figured but pretty much in broad strokes Um, and yet he was still flexible enough to allow that freedom to the other creators that he brought on board yeah no 100% and yeah shows that George is just a damn good guy all around (laughs) so yeah it's lovely (laughs) Um, okay, but yeah, I feel like that's enough background for now. So let's get to it. What were our general, like, overarching thoughts on the novelization? And I will start with you, Kirsty. What did you think about it? I enjoyed it, and it surprised me in the way it chose to emphasize certain things and kind of shift things around. Because the Phantom Menace, it, it's an odd one, isn't it? Because there isn't like a clear protagonist. Yes. There's a lot of moving perspectives and parts, and obviously like, there's the mystery around who Padme is with the handmaidens and, and Amidala and everything. And obviously there's also the even bigger mystery with Sidious and Palpatine. And I thought it handled all those things really well and was able to preserve mystery, but as you said, kind of lay the groundwork for some interesting foreshadowing. And I thought there were some really great, subtle character moments for Anakin as well. Yeah. Do not get me wrong. I think that Jake Lloyd's performance in that movie is great. I think he is perfect as the nine-year-old prodigy. Like he's, I, I just think he has a lot of lovely energy. I think the thing about the kind of difficult character of Anakin at that age is that he is supposed to have this like inner wise beyond his years, and it's like this um, intangible thing because he has this incredible connection to the Force, right? And the super high midichlorian count that's meant to set him apart from other kids you know they keep emphasizing that he's different but that must have been really difficult for a nine-year-old to play yeah but so they're able to do that internally with these like quiet character moments when he's like actually thinking about things or he's by himself i think that worked really well yeah no i feel like that was one of the main things that stood out to me from the novel is that I, I do like the film of The Phantom Menace, so I don't mean to like trash it with what I'm about to say. But I think in terms of how George Lucas directed the actors, he directed them all to be quite flat and stoic emotionally. 
And like, I don't think that was by accident. You know, I think that was because of what he was trying to get across with who those characters are, you know, and the sorts of situations they're in. So Padme is very stoic, you know, because she's like a, a member of royalty. You know, she's got all these serious responsibilities on her shoulders. Anakin is quite like serious and like emotionally flat, I guess, because he is meant to be like prenaturally like gifted you know and he's like wise beyond his years all that sort of thing and the jedi are jedi so yeah no shit <laughs> um but yeah i feel like in the in the novelization you don't get that as much you know and you do get much more emotionality from all the characters and especially anakin and i think anakin was easily the one who benefited the most from it um i really liked what the novel did with him um and in terms of you know who is the protagonist of this story the novelization is pretty unequivocal about the fact that Anakin is the protagonist of this story and I think that's a good choice um, because again I do also like the read of The Phantom Menace that is Padme's story you know and I think that's completely valid but I feel like you can't make her the protagonist in the context of a novelization without spoiling that twist of you know the like handmaiden and queen swap you know with Sabe taking over the queenship you know for much of the film um so I totally understand why they didn't go down that path and instead chose to center Anakin and and really that does also just make the most sense from the point of view of this being the first part of a trilogy because obviously throughout the whole trilogy it really is Anakin's story um and yeah as we know sadly by Revenge of the Sith someone like Padme is a little bit more sidelined so yeah, I do think it made sense. It's a good choice. Yeah, and obviously we've both read the Revenge of the Sith novelization before as well. It's been a while, but just re- from what I remember of it, that centers Anakin and Padme's relationship pretty well too. So I think the novelizations might do a good job of deepening that emotional connection for anyone who is still like not fully on board with Annie Dala as a romance. Yeah, Not to sound creepy, because obviously he's very young in this story but i thought the phantom menace and the novelization especially i think it does a pretty good job of establishing anakin's instant emotional connection to padme yeah and we will talk about that in more detail later (laughs) yeah i think it did a really good job of like and 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 mutual as well yeah they both just felt this connection with each other and like they know that they're going to be important to each other's lives I, I thought that was handled really well. Yeah, I feel like I was a little bit iffy on that at first, but it won me over. Um, and yeah, we can like battle about that later. <laughs> battle is too strong. We really don't disagree that strongly. Um, but yeah, we did have a little Twitter exchange about a certain part of the novel, which I'm sure everyone is thrilled to hear about. So yeah, we'll go into that. Um, yeah, so in terms of the novel's relationship to the film like in terms of like how similar is it how different is it because that does vary a lot with these novelizations you'd be surprised you know depending on who's writing they can be either very close or strikingly different sometimes um and i'd say in this case it was very very loyal to the film for the most part you know like i needed to like reference back to the film for a few passages of the book when i was preparing my notes for the podcast and i watched the film as I had the novelization transcript open in the next window. And, you know, oh, really? Yeah, and it was a really interesting thing to do because it was so close, you know, it's much closer than I remembered because there okay. were parts of the novel where I thought, oh, wow, this is a nice, cool bit of emotion. But then I watched the film and 
the dialogue is there you know it's the same dialogue almost word for word um but it just left a very different impression on me in the novel versus the film hmm yeah i found it to be an interesting and worthwhile exercise for a few little excerpts um yeah i don't know if you're thinking about the same moments as i i think there were moments where like anakin was saying goodbye to shmi and even like when padme would leave and then come back and he was feeling that loss and like oh i don't know if i'll see her again and i just yeah it's kind of what i was talking about before there's just moments that didn't quite translate to screen and i don't know if that was george's intention or not yeah i agree with you those moments like definitely hit me much more strongly in the novel versus the film um and again like it's weird because like i say if you compare them often like the bare bones of them they're happening in the film as well but they just don't have that same emotional quality it's very hard to pin down (laughs) so that's why i sound like i'm struggling for words i think it's that every character in the movie as you said before they're kind of like living their lives within these confines obviously anakin and shmi are enslaved um qui-gon and obi-wan are in the order and and padme is obviously masked like physically and symbolically and like hiding her identity so it's like they are all interacting with these unspoken rules yeah and they're all coming from these different cultures as well um yeah i just think maybe the novelization and i i I wouldn't say that it's essential reading because as you said it is pretty loyal to the story but if you're a fan of the phantom menace i recommend reading this honestly because it does bring some depth there yeah no 100 percent. it's the sort of thing where if you already like the story but you want like a slightly deeper level of understanding of what's going on with it definitely read this because yeah you will get like extra detail out of it that just doesn't come through i think in the film so yeah i i feel like it's yeah well well done and worth reading in that way do you feel like it also helped you understand what was going on in terms of the political factions and conflicts (laughs) um it did somewhat i found that sort of thing a little bit bare bones um in terms of the level with which it explained it but it was also good because it did explain it like i was 12 (laughs) (laughs) which i needed um and yeah like i think the early stuff you know with like what the hell even is the trade federation why is the trade federation the gangsters basically aren't they they're just holding naboo hostage yeah exactly i think i did like a tweet about on twitter like asking like look is the trade federation basically the libertarian party of star wars (laughs) (laughs) like i I think i'm thinking about that purely from the perspective of the view on taxation because again my very simplistic view of the trade federation is they do not like being taxed and that yeah. is a big part of why they decide to invade Naboo. And I also get the impression the Libertarian Party in America does not like taxes. <laughs> so that's the sole background to that comparison. Um, but yeah, like I, I think I understood it a little bit better here than perhaps I did in the movie because I've always been confused. Um, I think I was uh, pretty struck by the way he described certain things like Padme being duped by Palpatine into like calling the vote of no confidence. Mm. And as you said, it does kind of happen exactly the same way in the movie, but like there was just a way it was illustrated that just like made that so clear. Yes. It made me it made me feel bad for Padme because she obviously trusted him. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I feel like there was a lot of clarity. Yeah, the reaction of the existing Chancellor as well, like his shock and betrayal. 
Yeah, for um, Valorum. Yeah. <laughs> how, yes. how could we forget Chancellor Valorum? Who's like, he's obviously in the movie, but it's just not, I don't, I just don't pay attention to him. Yeah. There's just too much other stuff going on. But here it's like, that's what you're focusing on at that moment. So. Yeah. And I feel like it felt more consequential as well in terms of how it was described in the novel, you know, where it just feels like a thing that happens kind of in the movie and you don't really have a sense of the fact it's this huge deal you know it'd be like the president of the united states being replaced you know yeah um and yeah i feel like that comes through a bit better in the novel there's actually a point i wanted to make in that i don't know about you kirsty but i found this novelization i feel like in terms of the way it was written and the sort of language it was using in the tone, it felt like it was perhaps aimed at a slightly younger audience than some of the novelizations to the original trilogy. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, just in terms of like the language seemed quite simple, you know, the sentence constructions were like a bit basic. And I don't mean to criticize it by saying that, you know, I think that's a good thing, really, you know, in terms of that clarity that I mentioned. But I guess I'm used to, for each movie, we've typically had an adult novelization so very mature and <laughs> sophisticated of course um but then also like a junior novelization you know that is for younger readers and i felt like sometimes when i was reading this it did almost read like a more junior novelization you know i feel like you could give this to a 12 year old and they'd probably be able to follow it just fine you know um and yeah i, I don't know if you found that kirsty what did you think on that front yeah i mean i think that reflects the phantom menace mm. obviously you've got a huge amount of levity coming from characters like jar jar and the gungans in general yeah and i, I think that really helps because as you said like all the other characters are pretty stoic <laughs> yes obviously you get childlike moments of anakin but it's really jar jar providing that that relief isn't it so yeah no 100 percent. so yeah i think it definitely reflects the fact that Phantom Menace is very much made with like that child audience in mind. And that's a good thing. We should embrace that because Star Wars is for children and the child in all of us. So I'll be interested to see how that changes for Attack of the Clones because obviously you have the romance front and centre. Yeah. So the tone presumably will be different. <laughs> yeah. Like again, I don't want to spoil anything in a big way, but I will say just from having read the first two chapters of that novel, I was immediately struck by a dramatic shift in tone from Phantom Menace. So um yeah, I'm very excited for you to read it so we can talk about it. But yeah, no, again, like in terms of differences, nothing is really like markedly different apart from the fact that there are several new chapters written from Anakin's perspective that are set before Anakin appears in the film. So like those chapters, I think it's the first two and then there's one additional extra chapter for Anakin a little bit later on. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just found that an interesting choice because in the film proper, I don't think Anakin appears until you're like almost halfway through the movie. Mm. Yeah, we're meeting him through their eyes. Yeah. And that's just not... It's completely different the way he's introduced in the novelization. He's very much a character in his own right. And the narrative is building towards the meeting. Yeah, very much. And <clears throat> that is like foreshadowing central, basically. <laughs> this is all about Anakin having encounters that like reinforce this belief that he has, that he's not always going to be a slave, that he is going to get off Tatooine and do something for his life, you know, and obviously he's a little boy, so he doesn't have like a clear sense of what that is, but he just knows there's something more waiting for him out there. Um, mm. And yeah, obviously as the reader, we know there's a lot more waiting for him because we know Anakin becomes Darth Vader. But there's a real sadness to it too because what's emphasised there is that he wants to take Shmi with him. Oh god, and yeah. And take care of her. 
no exactly i feel like this novel is like great ammunition in like the discussion that i like to call the suffering olympics um because people are very fond of comparing the protagonists of star wars films for some reason (laughs) and i have seen people like rank like luke anakin and like ray against each other in terms of like who had the shittiest childhood on a sand planet (laughs) which uh, i find a bit um uncouth perhaps (laughs) Um, but yeah, this definitely made Anakin's existence seem much bleaker than I remembered from the movie. And obviously, factually, you know from the Phantom Menace film that Anakin is a slave. But I don't know, something about how it's presented in the film, that it just doesn't feel all that bad. Well, yeah, they they gloss over it because it's like Qui-Gon is presented presumably as a hero, maybe a little greyer because he's not on the council and everything, despite his experience. But he is just like, yeah, I didn't. We didn't come here to free slaves, and he says that to a slave. Yeah, it's really bad. And it's like, oh yeah, I could free Anakin, but not you. So, bye. <laughs> Tough look, bitch. <laughs> Sorry. But I know what you mean in that the way that it's like, yeah, obviously they don't have a lot of material comforts, but they're presented as if they like have their own home. And, yeah. You know, the the way in which certain things are described in this, it actually quite you know like um when they're at dinner they talk about what would happen if a slave ran away yeah and that they have these implants in their bodies i can understand why lucas wouldn't want to go there with the movie because it is it's pretty shocking but like if arguably if you're going to introduce slavery as a concept especially where it concerns your main characters you kind of do need to drive home how what the implications are for for their lives there yeah again it's interesting it's like you you do have that in the film you know like anakin like makes the point about how if you run away they blow you up you know but it's again it's like the emphasis you know and how it's handled because and like it kind of makes sense in the film you know because anakin's a little boy he doesn't like have a full comprehension of what being blown up means (laughs) yeah i know that sounds horrible but Again, it just feels like it's handled more seriously in the novel relative to the film, you know, and you feel the consequences and the weight of it much more, mm. you know, in terms of what it means to be a slave. So, yeah, I was just really struck by the mis- misery of that existence and the poignancy of it. And it did give more context to Shimi making that decision to just gladly let her son go with the Jedi, you know, because... Like, I still have some issues with it, you know, in terms of, like, her agency. And she's not really, like, asked or consulted or given any form of decision over, like, what her kid is going to do in this situation. It's basically, like, it's your choice, Anakin. And I'm just there thinking, but he's nine. I think his mom has a say. Yeah. <laughs> um, But I-, I feel like they do, like, give that background, you know, because, you know, she's being self-sacrificial, you know, she's being like, well, of course I want my son with me, but for his sake, it's better that he goes, you know, because he can have a better life if he leaves with these people. So, yeah, I think it did make you understand that, even though I still think it wasn't great for Shimi. But, yeah, the movie wasn't great for Shimi either, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it lays the groundwork well for what's going to happen next. Yeah. Which is obviously a tragedy, but... Yeah. And they, they they even come back to those points when, um, you know, Watto brings the paperwork so that Anakin can be freed. And they're talking about how they deactivate the implant and then he'll have it surgically removed later on Coruscant. It's like, oh, it's just such a, I don't know. It's strange for a nine-year-old to be 
dealing with that. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a bit grim, really. It would probably be difficult for them to have that kind of thing in the movie, I think, maybe. Or at least do it justice. Again, like we, you were saying, Kirsty, like the film like does have like an almost childish tone, you know, and there's lots of like humour aimed at like young kids and stuff, so they can't like veer from like Jar Jar stepping in poo <laughs> to like a serious treatise on the horrors of slavery. Um and yeah, that that's actually something I found with the novel. I feel like Jar Jar was almost de emphasised in the book. And I do understand why, because I feel like Jar Jar is a very hard character to translate into writing. He's so visual, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, it's all like visual gags, you know, and it's all about like his body language and the physical presence of him. And like, how do you capture that in a novel? And mm. yeah, I, I feel like it just didn't really translate. And I don't even think that's Terry Brooks's fault necessarily. It's just the nature of the character. Yeah, I I think he worked well in the capacity he was given here because he was kind of that bridge to the Gungan culture mm, yeah. and, and Bosnas and everything. I, I think before all of that was handled quite well. It's just it does feel different. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I realise we've gone a, a little bit all over the place, but it's always hard for these <laughs> novelisation discussions. Um, yeah, so I did want to briefly touch on the world building. Um and I guess for me, it was perhaps one of the book's weaknesses. I feel like it was something where it was there, you know, like it would give you context whenever we were introduced to a new planet, you know, there'd be a little bit of a description to introduce it. But it always felt very, very basic and perfunctory, you know, like I could tell that Terry Brooks had probably been given a few notes, you know, from the people at Lucasfilm saying this is what type of planet Naboo is, you know, and he'd like copied them quite closely. Um, mm. So I felt like there wasn't much of that like authorial flair on display in those parts um and yeah like that was one of the weaknesses for me how did you feel about that sort of thing Kirsty? yeah now that you mention it it does it does feel that way but to be honest i don't know how it would have been any different because the phantom menace is such a shift from the original trilogy and what you previously understand star wars to be and kind of the range of planets that they show and the range of cultures Mm. Um, so introducing something like Naboo I don't even know where they would start to be honest, it might be the case that those things are deepened with Attack of the Clones I mean Tatooine obviously that he's familiar with so that's kind of where most of that is I guess with like the, it bringing in the Tuscans again yes, and kind of yeah, setting out the different communities that live there. But also it's through Qui-Gon's eyes. He's like explaining it quickly to Obi-Wan and, and the Queen and stuff as they arrive. And I mean, we don't even know, has has Qui-Gon been to Tatooine or is he just kind of like voicing the stuff that he's heard secondhand about those communities? There is actually a line where he says that he has been to Tatooine oh, before okay. a few years ago. And that okay. made my conspiracy theorist brain <laughs> okay. wonder about Qui-Gon. Was it nine years me. ago? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, Qui-Gon is a bit of a renegade because he doesn't like completely respect the rules of the order. Who knows? Hey, that isn't against the rules. <laughs> That's true. As long as there's no attachment, completely attachment-free sex. <laughs> and, and to be fair, that would be reflected by the relationship between Qui-Gon and Shmi in the film, because it's pretty cold if they did have a child together. There is this like interesting moment where Anakin brings them home, obviously, because there's the storm. And yes. um, he and Shmi kind of have these unspoken interactions. And it, Again, they're adults and the other characters present are much younger and then you have Jar Jar. So they're, they're able to communicate in this way where I know Qui-Gon has the Force, 
but he's obviously able to tell where Shmi's reservations are coming from that suddenly she's been expected to host everyone for dinner and she doesn't have the food mm. um and yeah i just kind of appreciated those little touches and they in they endeared Qui-Gon to me more I, he, he had like a bit of emotional intelligence there <laughs> that i didn't quite expect even a consideration that like oh if we're gonna come for dinner you need to feed us yeah. so here you are it's like yeah, oh was, these people nice. are slaves they might not have much actually <laughs> maybe yeah. we should help them out yeah no that's a good point um yeah and I, and I did appreciate little touches like that because yeah I just made characters that can feel very cold in the film itself feel a little bit more sympathetic and human and yeah like they actually have some sympathy for the people they're dealing with in their wretched situation um because yeah, yeah it's kind of important one of the more substantial pieces of world building in the novel was there's just like a really long digression where Sidious just starts like re- reflecting on the origins of the Sith Order. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's like just basically like an info dump that I can only imagine Terry Brooks was either given by George Lucas or given by like Lucasfilm minions. Basically, I don't think he would have just come up with this like whole cloth. Um, and I'd probably need to research it more, to be honest, to see where this stuff first appeared, you know, in, in writing, because it's not in the original trilogy, but it's basically about how the Sith, like, came into being about 2,000 years ago, and they were founded by a rogue Jedi Knight, and then there was all this infighting, and eventually Darth Bane came up with the rule of two, blah, 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 you know, all that sort of stuff, and... Yeah, again, to someone like me where I can find this sort of thing like really confusing and like alienating and just like, I don't know what's going on with these people. What the hell is the Sith? I found this helpful. It was like the Cliff Notes version of the history of the Sith Order. So, Out of curiosity, because obviously these, these older novelizations aren't strictly canon anymore, mm-hmm. is there anything in new canon to kind of contradict the stuff That's... so far? It, it, it does feel like it it works at the moment yeah i'm just looking um and darth bane does indeed have a canon entry on wikipedia which means he is in fact still canon and let's see what it says about him darth bane was a legendary or oh, that suggests he might not actually be real okay human male dark lord of the sith and the sole survivor of the destruction of the brotherhood of darkness <laughs> sorry okay <laughs> such tryhards it sounds like a metal band uh, at the hands of the Jedi Order during the Jedi Sith War a thousand years before the Clone Wars but yeah it seems like it has stuff in common with what's still the case basically but it might not be exactly this version I think which again is one of the dangers of reading this sort of stuff because it's not necessarily true anymore but that's okay like and I'm not super picky about like oh it has to be canon you know oh me neither I was just curious because they do have this as you say it's kind of like an info dump yeah and this was made a while ago I was just wondering if it was still kind of in keeping yeah I I sense it largely is still in keeping um but yeah it's something I would need to look into more like just like having that glimpse at his wikipedia page (laughs) I'm just looking on Wikipedia and there's a wonderful piece of art where it's got like Darth Bane and then just like Palpatine and Maul behind him. <laughs> and they just look like such dorks. It's really funny. <laughs> but in a way, and I'm not saying this in like a bad way because I do think that Harry Brooks did a good job, but I don't think that this kind of stuff is super necessary to the story. Because I think part of the strength of The Phantom Menace is that you you are just kind of like dumped into this brand new era 
And yeah, you've got Sidious and Maul there and there's not much dialogue between them and Maul knows he has his orders and it's what he's been training for and he just goes and does it. Yeah. And because Sidious is still pretty mysterious, we're kind of limited to like hollows of him talking and he's obviously covered up. Yeah. Although still obviously Palpatine, which is hilarious. So. <laughs> <laughs> but his goals are pretty murky, at least to the other characters. They become clear to us, but like... Even at the end of The Phantom Menace, if I try and put the other prequels out of my mind, yeah. it's like, oh my god, what's he going to do next? You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I feel like if I were the editor working on this book, I might have been tempted to just take this out. So I feel like it's the sort of thing where it's really exciting and cool for fans. You know, it's like, oh my god, the Sith, we have information. You know, it's fun in, on that level. But yeah, in terms of what does this actually do for the narrative at hand, I think it does very little and it might as you say, actually detract from it by removing a lot of the mystery, you know, about what these Sith people even are. Because mm. a big point in the story is that the Jedi are completely like baffled as to these people coming back because they thought all the Sith were dead. And yeah, and to be fair, this like background does provide context as to why all the Sith are dead. <laughs> um, because they couldn't agree and they ended up killing each other is basically the answer. Um, but yeah, like again, it might just be a little bit too much and a bit too on the nose, but that's mm. okay because it's a novelization and novelizations tend to do that sort of thing. <laughs> okay, cool. So then I wanted to just go through the characters one by one a bit. Um, so I know we've talked about Anakin a bit already, but I feel like there's a bit more to say because a lot of this novel is very Anakin centric. Um, so yeah, we obviously get those extra chapters early on in the book that introduce him before he's introduced in the film proper and yeah what did you think they added to the character Kirsty in terms of like extra information or extra context to Anakin relative to the film well it opens with him pod racing right and I'm not a huge fan of pod racing in general but the way it was used to kind of emphasize Anakin's strengths and his connection to the force um I, I thought that was well done yeah and I also did like how at the end of that chapter, there was like a nice twist where if you were experiencing this novel with no awareness of the fact that Jake Lloyd had been cast in this role, you would assume that it was like an older person, you know, doing these things, you know, because it's blatantly extremely dangerous. But then at the end of the novelization, it's like, this is Anakin Skywalker and he's about to turn 10 years old or something, you know, which is pretty hard yeah. hitting stuff. So. I guess that was a bit of a twist for fans at the time. They didn't... I mean, obviously, if they'd been paying attention to casting and everything, it would be different. But in terms of, like, approaching The Phantom Menace as a story, there was a bit of controversy around Lucas deciding to start with Anakin so young, right? Yes. Yeah, it makes a sense to kind of have that as a bit of a re reveal for the novelization's sake. Yeah. And to, yeah, to kind of emphasise that he is older than his years in terms of how he relates to things and his experiences so far and what he wants out of life. Yeah, exactly. You have the impression from those early chapters that he's always been this boy with dreams and ambitions that extend far beyond his station in life. And yeah, it just creates some nice setup to the fact that you then get the eventual payoff of him leaving the planet and becoming a Jedi Padawan. So yeah, you feel like but glad for him by the end of it because he has achieved that dream. Um, I think one of the more interesting additions to this novel was there is a chapter 
where there's like a weird encounter between Anakin and a Tusken Raider who's wounded. Um, this was really weird because I was like, does he know what's going to happen in Attack of the Clones? Yes! Did George tell him to put him this in? I know, I had exactly <laughs> the same thought. Um, and I was wondering if you could, for the benefit of our dear listeners, Kirsty, um, just read out the excerpts I have highlighted here about like Anakin having reflections on his encounter with the Tuscan, basically, in some premonitions, perhaps. Yeah. So the context here is that he comes across a lone Tuscan who's been injured mm-hmm. in, in out in the desert, right? And he doesn't know what to do, and he's afraid of him, and then realizes that the Tuscan's afraid of him, and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, Anakin realized suddenly that the Tuscan was afraid. He could sense it in the way the other spoke, in the way he sat waiting. He was crippled and weaponless. He was at Anakin's mercy. The boy understood the Tuscan's fear, but it surprised him anyway. It seemed out of character. The Sand People were supposed to be fearless. Besides, he wasn't afraid of the Tuscan. Maybe he should have been, but he wasn't. Anakin Skywalker wasn't afraid of anything, was he? Staring into the opaque lenses of the goggles that hid the Tuscan Raider's eyes, he contemplated the matter. Most times he thought there was nothing that could frighten him. Most times he thought he was brave enough that he would never be afraid. But in that most secret part of himself, where he hid the things he would reveal to no one, he knew he was cheating on the truth. He might not ever be afraid for himself, but he was sometimes very afraid for his mother. What if something were to happen to her? What if something awful were to happen to her, something he could do nothing to prevent? He felt a shiver go down his spine. What if he were to lose her? How brave would he be then if the person he was closest to in the whole endless universe was suddenly taken away from him? It would never happen, of course. It couldn't possibly happen. But what if it did? He stared at the Tuscan Raider, and in the deep silence of the night, he felt his confidence tremble like a leaf caught in the wind. Very good. Very good writing. Very good reading, Kirsty. Thank you. So I said it, I said before I started reading that Anakin was afraid of him, but I guess he's like telling himself that he's not. Mm. Yeah. But he is someone completely alien to him. Like, obviously, Anakin's aware that the Tuscans are out there, but there's minimal interaction, and they've obviously got this reputation where you stay away from them. Yes. There is added context about how, yeah, the the Tuscans are very dangerous and they're very feared and hated in the towns in Tatooine because obviously they do bad things <laughs> sometimes to civilians. Um, and yeah, like I just felt this excerpt was so interesting because I think, as you say, Kirsty, Terry Brooks must have been told about what was going to happen to Shmi. You know, I reckon during that meeting with George Lucas, he. Like gave him the broad strokes, you know, as to how the whole prequel trilogy was going to go down. Um, and yeah, part of that conversation must have been Anakin is going to lose his mother and it's going to happen at the hands of the Tuscan Raiders. You know, otherwise, you know, Terry Brooks must have a ESP or something because <laughs> it's a bit eerie, you know, um, how it lines up. And yeah, I feel like it must be deliberate. And it adds this weight to what Anakin ends up doing in retaliation. Yeah. Because the way he says it to Padme, you know, they were like animals and I slaughtered them like animals. But this interaction and the way he actually, uh, obviously we didn't cover it here in this small excerpt, but basically he cares for the raider and watches over him overnight to make sure that he's okay. And then more Tuscans come and take him away. Um, And they have, there's this like sense that they could have attacked Anakin, but they didn't. So it's this... You know, there's this understanding reach and he's displaying compassion. Um, so he knows that they are people. But obviously something goes wrong in Attack of the Clones and he just loses it and loses that empathy for them. Yeah. No, so I think part of 
what these like extra chapters on Anakin do so well is they do a really good job of showing like how kind and compassionate and caring he is as a little boy. You know, there's lots of extra details that support that. And yeah, one of those facets is his behaviour towards this Tuscan because he's afraid of the Tuscan Raider. But at the same time, he understands that this person's helpless and he'll die if he doesn't do something to assist him, basically. And so part of the challenge for Anakin in that sequence is he has to overcome his fear in order to be the bigger person, you know, and like help this Tuscan, which he does, and the Tuscan survives, and as you said, Kirsty, then others turn up and take him away to help him further. Um, and yeah, then it just creates this awful contrast over how Anakin did like the kind, merciful thing here, and then later on, like it could have been a completely different tribe of Tuscan raiders. Who knows? I don't want to generalise to <laughs> not all Tuscans. Um, but yeah, then some other Tuscans obviously kidnap and torture his mother, and it just creates this really horrible, awful contrast. And then it's just made even worse when Anakin takes his revenge on them, and then when you contrast him taking that revenge alongside the compassion and mercy he showed when he was a small boy, it shows this like marked dark shift in his thinking, basically. Which, yeah, is completely understandable from a human point of view, but it's also like part of the tragedy and sadness of the character. Yeah, for me it is really emphasising the mistake that Qui-Gon made in taking Anakin away from Shmi. And I understand why he did it. Yeah. He obviously sensed that something was very special about Anakin, but the Jedi also had these rules about not training people when they're too old for a reason, because they do emphasize as well when they're talking about Obi-Wan that he was taken away from his parents so young he doesn't remember them. Yeah. And that, and he sees Qui-Gon as a father figure now. So for Anakin, he's constantly looking back, worrying about his mother, having dreams about her, promises that he'll be reunited with her one day. And all of that makes emotional sense, right? It just adds to the tragedy. Yeah. So I think actually one of the striking things about the novelization, just a very small fleeting detail. So I think it might have said something like, like all Jedi Padawans were taken from the birth families before they were six months old. Yeah. <laughs> or something, which I, I don't think lines up anymore, you know, because we visually see someone like Ahsoka being like recruited into the order and she was definitely older than the six months although then again i don't know how her species works you know maybe she was six months old according to her species who cares but yeah and i think that underlines it you know because you're six months old obviously like babies have attachment to their caregivers but they're not gonna have consciously remember anything whereas anakin obviously mm. consciously remembers a lot when he's nine yeah and yeah it's all just so sad and messed up the whole situation is yeah pretty grim yeah yoda knows yeah exactly <laughs> he's like uh i didn't agree with yeah. him, just so you know it was the council i did not agree i actually found that really <laughs> funny in the novel <laughs> just to be clear Qui-Gon, i think you're making a huge mistake yeah. you just see like such a bitch about it it's like, well, he's right he is completely right but yeah it does also mean make him a bit of an asshole sometimes, though, to be fair. Yeah, to, yeah Yoda like, is a bit of an asshole. Yeah, it's like, well, if there is all this fear about attachment, you could provide him with better advice, dick. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I read a bit too salty. Um, but yeah, then there's like other really nice little moments of description with Anakin um, in the novel. Um, and one of the most poignant ones was exactly what we've been talking about relative to Anakin missing his mother. Um, this one's quite short, Kirsty, mercifully. Um, could you just read out what I've highlighted, please? 
Anakin stared into the darkness, willing himself to move, to overcome his inertia. But his dreams haunted him still. He found himself thinking of his mother and home, and everything closed down inside. He missed her so much. He had thought it would get better once he was away, but it hadn't. Everything reminded him of her, and if he tried to close his eyes against those memories, he found her face waiting for him, suspended in the darkness of his thoughts, anxious and worn. Tears came to his eyes, unbidden. Maybe he had made a mistake by coming. Maybe he should go home. Except he couldn't now. Maybe not ever again. And I think this underlines what we were talking about when saying, you know, Jake Lloyd, he was a little boy, I think he was eight, you know, so he was even younger than the character he was playing. And, you know, like what eight-year-old could perform this sort of emotion? You know, like it's almost cruel, I think, to ask like a child that young to seriously like dig deep into their interiority and express these sorts of feelings. I think very rarely it can happen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I don't think it does happen in the film of The Phantom Menace. But again, that's why it's nice to have a novelization because there the author can write and craft the characters however they please. And I think, yeah, just the emotional substance of the relationship and that longing for his mother, it comes through much, much more strongly in the book than the film, which yeah, I really appreciated. Yeah. Oh, Anakin. It was very sad. Because they, you know, it's it's so sad because obviously he's presented with this life changing decision and it's exciting, you know, go away and train to be a Jedi. But even when Qui Gon takes him, he doesn't know that the council is going to say yes. Yeah. So it is just like separating him from his mother without any real promise of how his life's going to go. Yeah. In a way, it's like quite reckless and selfish of Qui Gon. Well, that's what Obi Wan thinks, and yeah. And we're going to get to that. We've got a lot to say <laughs> on that topic. Um, yeah, have we said we want to say on Anakin now? Should we move on to Qui-Gon? I think so, yeah. yeah. No, so, <laughs> Qui-Gon, I think the whole time I was reading this book, I was just thinking about, like, the stoner Qui-Gon like thing, you know, from fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. So it definitely comes through very strongly on the page, I think. So I guess, like, Qui-Gon in the film, he's so, like, majestic, you know. He's like Liam Neeson, you know. He's so, like, charismatic and he has so much presence, he can make all kinds of like bullshit seem like so plausible, you know, you'll forgive him anything. Whereas I feel like in the novelization, some of the more dubious aspects of Qui-Gon's behaviour come through more strongly. And I liked that because I like it when characters are flawed. So yeah, I enjoyed that. What did you think about Qui-Gon's presentation in this, Kirsty? I was surprised that they emphasised how old he was quite a lot. Yeah. Because I don't get that impression from the movie. I think they aged him up. They said he was about 60. Yeah, they did. And he does not remotely seem 60. Drop the skincare routine if that's the case. (laughs) (laughs) You look great, (laughs) Qui-Gon. Yeah. No, he should be like on the cover of some magazine or something. (laughs) I think the first time I noticed it was they were talking about the age gap between him and Obi-Wan. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah. (laughs) He's not that much older, but apparently he is. Yeah. I don't think Um, it was conscious on any level, but it did remind me a little bit of The Elder, you know, the episode of Visions. Because obviously there's a lot of conscious dialogue in that about how I'm getting older now and you're the new generation and like I'm not as good as I once was, you know, you're going to be better than me. You know, there was a little bit of that vibe, apart from maybe like Qui-Gon was more like, oh shit, I'm getting old. I don't like this. (laughs) Which seemed almost like the Sith mentality, so... Who knows? Who knows? I think it was well juxtaposed with like Maul's energy and his focus, right? That this is what he'd been training for forever and he was in his peak physical prime and everything. Yeah. And Qui-Gon like 
from Obi-Wan's perspective again, it was like, I think it was repeated that he was renowned for his swordsman skills. Yeah. But even so, he was past his prime. Yeah. So there was only so much he could do to keep up. Yeah. And that's ultimately why Darth Maul won in that battle. Mm. Not overall. Um, But yeah, I guess some of the most important parts in the book about Qui-Gon were very much about his mysticism and his view of the force um, and yeah I did like how some of those themes were drawn out um, could you read out the bit I've highlighted which is basically Qui-Gon talking to Obi-Wan about you know like his approach to things how he views the force and stuff it comes quite early in the book I think they're having an argument about Qui-Gon taking on Jar Jar basically <laughs> yeah listen to me my young Padawan There are secrets hidden in the Force that are not easily discovered. The Force is vast and pervasive, and all living things are a part of it. It is not always apparent what their purpose is, however. Sometimes that purpose must be sensed first in order that it may be revealed later. Obi-Wan's young face clouded. Some secrets are best left concealed, Master. He shook his head. Besides, why must you always be the one to do the uncovering? You know how the Council feels about these detours. Perhaps just once the uncovering should be left to someone else. Qui-Gon looked suddenly sad. No, Obi-Wan. Secrets must be exposed when found. Detours must be taken when encountered. And if you are the one who stands at the crossroads or the place of concealment, you must never leave it to another to act in your place. So I think it's really interesting that at this point during the story, it's kind of in reference to Jar Jar. Like, Obi-Wan. And you can tell this from the movie. Obviously, Jar Jar annoys him. And he does annoy Qui-Gon too, but you get the sense that Qui-Gon knows he'll be useful to them. But obviously what it's kind of foreshadowing later on in the story is that Qui-Gon will recognise something in Anakin. Yes, 100%. And that comes through way more strongly in the book than in the um, film itself, I think. Um, Because, yeah, you don't think about Jar Jar and Anakin being parallel characters, but they 100% are in terms of how they're both basically these projects that Qui-Gon takes on. Um, And, yeah, I, I just like how that's drawn out. I think it's an interesting like comparison because yeah on the surface they're so different you know and I guess the main thing correlating them is this idea of being underestimated and not being mm-hmm. all they appear because obviously Jar Jar at first just seems like a clumsy fool but then he's obviously the key to forming an alliance with the Gungans which saves the day in the end and then Anakin he's just a little boy so obviously you don't expect him to be capable of much because he's nine but then he according to Qui-Gon, turns out to be the chosen one. And that's obviously a really big deal. So, yeah. And I do feel like they kind of position Qui-Gon as being correct, you know, in terms of his attitude towards these perhaps lesser, in air quotes, beings, you know, and like taking an interest in like vulnerable people who don't seem like much at first. Um, You know, and Obi-Wan is the one who actually learns wisdom from appreciating what Qui-Gon's doing, you know, and seeing the advantages and that way of seeing things. Um, but I'm still, like, a bit on the fence about Qui-Gon's, like, philosophy, I suppose. It it does make me feel sad for Obi-Wan because he's like, I'm right here. Mm. I'm meant to be the project you're focusing on or at least the work that we do together. And yet you're always picking up these, like, side characters when we're on a mission. <laughs> yes. And, like, if you could just focus. And I think Obi-Wan, again, thinking about how he sees Qui-Gon as a father figure as well he like sees how great of a Jedi Qui-Gon could be in terms of like being on the council and everything if he if he did like focus on other things more yeah so it's kind of like you you can see both sides and empathize because I I did feel quite sad for Obi-Wan at times 
yeah and I guess that's it really isn't it it's not asking us to choose one over the other I think there are nuggets of wisdom in both their points of view and I guess the in the ideal world you'd have some compromise between them and I'm not sure they ever reached that really I feel like at the end of the day even though Qui-Gon is dead Qui-Gon basically gets his own way in terms of like Anakin is being trained you know and yeah and we all know how that ends up so it ultimately really wasn't for the best so and it's such a huge responsibility to put on Obi-Wan's shoulders as well yeah exactly because he's very much like oh I am ready I am ready but I think the council think "Eh, he's not actually really ready but then they kind of just do an about turn and like oh yeah I guess you're ready because Qui-Gon's dead now so we don't have much choice yeah and we're gonna give you this precocious nine-year-old with the highest midichlorian count ever good luck it might also be the chosen one (laughs) it really is just the perfect storm of like bad circumstances I think in terms of Anakin being trained as a Jedi because you know, like, there's lots of talk about, like, alternate universes, you know, and how things might have gone in a different situation. And I think one of the big questions for me is what if Qui-Gon had lived and been there to train Anakin? You know, how might have that changed things and how might have things gone differently? Um, mm. So I do feel like things would have gone very differently, but we'll never know because that's not what happened. So, yeah. Yeah. So we have a very long quote and I'm going to try and read it all without slipping. So it's Qui-Gon ruminating on Anakin and the nature of the Force. But Qui-Gon could not sleep. It was this boy. This boy! There was something about him. The Jedi Master watched the soft rise and fall of his chest as he lay locked in slumber, unaware of Qui-Gon's presence. The boy was special. He had told Shimi Skywalker, and she had agreed. She knew it too. She sensed it as he did. Anakin Skywalker was different. Qui-Gon lifted his gaze to a darkened window. The storm had subsided. The wind abated. It was quiet without, the night soft and welcoming in its peace. The Jedi Master fought for a moment on his own life. He knew what they said about him at the Council. <laughs> he was willful, even reckless in his choices. He was strong, but he dissipated his strength on causes that did not merit his attention. But rules were not created solely to govern behaviour. <laughs> lending credence to my theory about him going to Tatooine that time. No. <laughs> Rules were created to provide a roadmap to understand the Force. Maybe not. Was it so wrong for him to bend those rules when his conscience whispered to him that he must? The Jedi folded his arms over his broad chest. The Force was a complex and difficult concept. The Force was rooted in the balance of all things, and every movement within its flow risked an upsetting of that balance. A Jedi sought to keep the balance in place, to move in concert to its pace and will. But the Force existed on more than one plane, and achieving mastery of its multiple passages was a lifetime's work. Or more, he knew his own weakness. He was too close to the life force, when he should have been more attentive to the unifying force. He found himself reaching out to creatures of the present, to those living in the here and now. He had less regard for the past or the future, to the creatures that had, or would, occupy those times and spaces. It was the life force that bound him, that gave him heart and mind and spirit. So it was he empathised with Anakin Skywalker in ways that other Jedi would discourage, finding in this boy a promise he could not ignore. Obi-Wan would see the boy and Jar Jar in the same light, useless burdens, pointless projects, unnecessary distractions. Obi-Wan was grounded in the need to focus on the larger picture, on the unifying force. He lacked Qui-Gon's intuitive nature. He lacked his teacher's compassion for and interest in all living things. 
did not see the same things Qui-Gon saw. And I'm going to leave it there because my voice is dying. <laughs> it definitely deepens Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan's relationship from what I can see in the in the movie. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think that quote just makes explicit what we were just saying about that whole affinity between Jar Jar and Anakin. And I think reading about that in this novel, it kind of made me sad that Jar Jar is just so dropped, you know, going forward in the prequels. Because there is that sense of them having that bond, you know, and that link, even if it's like unconscious and not necessarily brought to the fore in the story this time. So I do feel like those characters were almost like on parallel roads, you know, that Qui-Gon started them on. And yeah, Jar Jar's road just kind of stops. <laughs> And yeah. it's like, I wonder what George was originally planning to do with him, you know, because I'm sure he did have plans and ideas, you know, and I'd, lo- I'd love to know what they were. I'm guessing that he was supposed to be more of a prominent senator. Yeah, that would make sense. Kind of on his on his own hero's journey. Yeah, so I guess um, George wouldn't have completely changed his trajectory. So we do see him as a politician in subsequent prequel films. Um, and yeah, it would make sense that he was just meant to have a slightly bigger role in that capacity. Hmm. I wonder if that information is out there. Might be. Yeah, I'll have to do some research into that. The possibilities for Jar Jar Binks, who knows. I did actually have some passages about Obi-Wan just getting annoyed of Qui-Gon, but I feel like they don't add much to what we already have. I enjoyed them, though. They felt, yeah, they felt true to the character and like right for that time in his life. And I do feel like they humanise Obi-Wan quite a lot because so much of what we see of Obi-Wan in the story that we have is him as Anakin's mentor and telling Anakin what not to do. Yeah. But him feeling the frustration as the apprentice, I, I enjoy that. Yeah, no, I-, I do think it's well done. I think it's quite a strong choice as well to make the younger person in that master and apprentice relationship almost the more mature and conservative one. <laughs> oh, he's at least he's sensible, yeah. And... M- more conscious of the rules yeah exactly and he like wants to stay within them whereas Qui-Gon's like ah no we can do whatever we want it's fine (laughs) it's what the force wills everyone it's what the force wills and (laughs) yeah I feel like there's a lot of humor inherent in that that I wish had been brought out a bit more in the film um so I do feel like it's brought out a little bit especially in relation to Jar Jar but yeah I feel like it could have been hilarious (laughs) they'd really stressed it like the novel does yeah oh my god um, like I again, I won't read out the whole thing, but there is like literal language used, like saying Obi Wan was straight up embarrassed for Qui-Gon, <laughs> yeah, which I just find quite delightful because it's like wow, burn. Um, okay, but we're moving into the end game now. So um, yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about Padme and how the f- book really treats the romance, and obviously it doesn't really have a romance because Anakin is nine years old. So what you instead have is foreshadowing of romance, basically. And mercifully, because you you don't need anything more in this story. Um, But yeah, how did you think Padme was handled and like that romantic foreshadowing, Kirsty? I was really pleased with it. Because I felt like it was in keeping with how they'd set up Anakin's ability to kind of sense things and see the future. And then just the the course change that Padme's introduction into his life represents. Yeah. Um, that he was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to marry you. And he was like so certain of that. And I thought the way that they treated it in terms of Padme's connection to him being mutual as well was really 
well done and respectful and and not creepy honestly because i i know that like people do make comments about the phantom menace being weird because there is a bit of an age difference but it's not like anything happens and she is meant to be 14 so it's only like she's five years older yes but it is just like they they form a bond you know and i think she does like feel this frustration between like she's caught between her role as queen and the responsibilities that she has there and how she does have to kind of hide that role and she, she you know when it is revealed in the novelization she makes a point of like apologizing to anakin and really not wanting to be dishonest with him i think that that was really well done yeah no i did appreciate I that think it, it it treats anakin with respect you know even though he's a child which was nice because it, it wouldn't necessarily have to go that way yeah that was one of my favorite aspects i think of how that relationship between padme and anakin was handled in the book because yeah i do think often children are just treated like objects or pawns you know to be used however the adults in their lives see fit you know they're just like shuttled around but i do feel like there was a lot of respect afforded to anakin as an individual like by padme and i guess she's helped in that by the fact that she is herself a child you know she's not far away from being nine too you know and obviously she was a very mature nine-year-old because i think she was already like in in school to be a politician or whatever the hell the naboo educational system looked like um but yeah she clearly really like respects anakin on that level and i thought there were some nice touches along those lines so again you do get sweet little interactions between padme and anakin in the film but they just hit differently in the book you know i keep on saying the same things but it's just executed a bit better i think yeah, they're expanded and you get both characters' perspectives and like what they don't say but they're thinking. Yes. Um yeah, I just think it's handled really well. I was I was pleasantly surprised by all of that. Yeah. No, definitely. It was well done. Um could we just read out the like photo of their interaction that I shared on Twitter? Uh, because I just want to like explain a little bit why I was a bit like, What? <laughs> Um, if you want uh yeah um it's just the picture i think it's like on the last page or the page before last of the notes oh i see yep sorry um so this is when they first meet anakin looked at padme and the girl at him their laughter died away the girl reached up to touch her hair self-consciously but she did not divert her gaze i'm going to marry you boy said suddenly There was a moment of silence and she began laughing again, a sweet musical sound he didn't mind at all. The creature who accompanied her rolled his eyes. I mean it, he insisted. You are an odd one, she said, her laughter dying away. Why do you say that? He hesitated. I guess because it's what I believe. Her smile was dazzling. Well, I'm afraid I can't marry you. She paused, searching her memory for his name. Anakin, he said. Anakin. She cocked her head. You're just a little boy. His gaze was intense as he faced her. I won't always be, he said quietly. And yeah, so just to explain myself, I feel like this got better with some later developments in the books because they actually revisit the whole line about I'm going to marry you. And, you know, like Padme even makes like a cute little comment about how, oh, I couldn't do that to my future husband or something like that. Um, and I felt like that soften this a bit so i guess the reason it struck me as a little bit strong was that final line of him saying i won't always be which is like yes that is factually true you will grow to be an adult and you will not always be a nine-year-old that is true but there's just something a little bit ominous about the firmness with which he says that in relation to this i don't know 
Well, I think because she's saying, oh, well, you can't marry me because you're just a little boy. He's like, I'm not talking about now. I just know one day I will. Right. Because he can see in the force. It, this is my reading. It's sure. not explicitly stated. But my guess is that when he meets her, he sees the future and realizes that they're going to be married. Kind of like how Ray sees the future when her and Kylo touch hands. And again, it's never made it's never made clear to us what she's seeing exactly, but that's kind of what's great about it, right? It's kind of more open to interpretation. Yeah, no, I really like that read, um, and I think that's a much more interesting and generous read than mine. And as you said, later on, it kind of circles back to it. It becomes almost like a private joke between them. Yes. Like she's saying, oh, well, you know, you're my future husband, and I think it is referenced a couple of times that they both know that they have this connection. Maybe she doesn't know that they'll be in a romantic relationship later on and get married, but Anakin has just seen it and it, he surprises himself when he says, like, I guess it's because it's what I believe. He's not he's not super sure why he has this sense, but he does have it. Yeah. So I guess it's just something a bit inherent in this type of character. You know, that kid who's preternaturally gifted in some way, mm. you know, and is like beyond what a normal child is in their ability. It is going to be strange. Yeah, exactly. So it is always a little bit unsettling, you know, and that's why there's a fine line between a character being very wise for their age and, like, a character being, like, really disturbing because of the, like, unnaturally mature way in which they behave, you know, and that's why you often get, mm. like, that in, like, horror movies, you know, of, like, creepy children who, like, <laughs> oh. are always, like, too, like, present. It's, like, hard to describe, but I think you know what I mean. And I don't think Anakin crosses that line, even in the novel, you know, and especially because of how the novel goes on to handle it. But, yeah, I think that it was just, that's what that line in particular made me think of, you know, that's why I was a little bit like, ooh. Um... But yeah, I much prefer the idea of him having had like foresight through the force, you know, and realizing, oh yes, this is why I have this strong reaction to Padme. Maybe this speaks to the dangers of live tweeting because you don't know how it's going to go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. This is why it's so easy to make a fool of yourself. <laughs> well, no, you didn't. It's up for debate. I know. I know Anakin and Padme's relationship and how it's depicted in the movies is controversial. For some people, it just doesn't work. Yeah. For me, it does. But you do just kind of have to buy into the characterization of these two characters of having very strange upbringings and like the roles that they've been put into in pretty that they're, they're so young and yet there's so much expected from them. Yeah. And they're trying to have the secret relationship within those constraints and they don't really know what they're doing. So there's a lot of caveats, but for me it works. Yeah, no, I'm honestly so excited to read the Attack of the Clones novelization and how it like examines and approaches that relationship. You know, so I think there's so much meat there. You know, because there's so much like that just isn't expressed in the film. You know, you can infer a lot. You know, from like the little gaps between scenes in the film. But yeah, I'm just super, super interested to see how it's fleshed out and I guess. Like just explained and justified, you know, because I, I think, think there's a lot of room already, for that. Already, this novelization is sort of making me reassess how Anakin behaves when he first sees Padme again. Because, because he has this sense from the very first time they meet that they're meant to be in each other's lives. Yeah. And so he's been thinking about her the whole time they've been apart. And in the film, there is this sense of him being like way too intense and creepy. But if he's seen through the force that he's supposed to marry this woman, and he does, then I can understand that a bit more. 
And it does have more of like a destiny thing to it. Yeah. And it does have that whole like Ray and Ben thing too. That whole idea of yeah, there's someone that you have this like supernatural connection with, but and you kind of like recognise something in them the first time you meet them. And even if you don't fully know what that connection is and what the nature of it is, you feel it in a really, really strong and powerful way. Yeah, and it's it's presented differently because Padme doesn't have the force. Yes. So it is like it, it's inevitably going to feel one-sided in that aspect because Anakin knows something and she doesn't. Yeah. So he just kind of has to wait for her to catch up emotionally. Um, so it is a different take on it. But yeah, it does have that Raylo element. Yeah. Nice. We managed to fit Raylo into this episode too. <laughs> it's another box tick. It's the key to everything. <laughs> it's the Rosetta Stone of stars. It's wonderful. <laughs> Um, okay, it's brilliant. Um, any final thoughts on the novelization before we wrap up? Um, I don't think so. Just kind of what I said earlier. Like, it, if you like the Phantom Menace, or even if you feel like certain parts of it don't quite work for you emotionally, and you, you kind of want to get some a, a greater understanding of how the characters interact and what they're really feeling under the surface, I recommend it. Yeah. No, hundred percent. Um. Yeah, I think, like you just said, actually, it might be worth the read if you did find the actual film a bit emotionally unsatisfying, you know, and like, say, the performances didn't work, you didn't buy the relationships between the characters. I think it's worth giving the book a try because it might convince you a bit more, basically, because it is just so much easier for a book to really delve into that stuff in a way that's not is easy for a film you know because it can't get into the characters heads like a book can and yeah and it's also just tied into george's approach to directing you know the sort of performances he wanted the actors to give so Mm. yeah if you prefer a bit more of like a humanistic take i guess on the story of the phantom menace definitely check it out yeah i'm excited to read attack of the clones now yeah no exactly which is the best outcome we could hope for because that's what we want from these discussions we want to feel excited and we want you to feel excited to continue this <laughs> odyssey through the Star Wars novelizations with us so yeah thank you very much for listening um, and yeah and if you have been reading the Phantom Menace novelization as well please do write in with your thoughts to scavengershorde at gmail.com because we would love to hear from you yeah I've seen a couple people talking about well if, if they've read it before kind of like revisiting it or reading it for the first time so it'll be interesting to see what other people think um so yep i'm rachel and you can find me on twitter at rachel1918 i'm kirsty and you can find both of us on twitter at scavengers horde until next time bye bye